Welcome to Machine Learning. So, I've started to uh, use the UCI, University of California, UCI, University of California, uh, data repository, and I've been looking at it. And there's a lot of, um, I don't wouldn't say necessarily real world useful data that you could like start drawing conclusions about the real world um, but there are there is a large set of data that's pretty well formed that uh, you can download and and apply machine learning algorithms to um, and uh, what uh, you can use is you can actually use the read uh, read CSV and a lot on a lot of these uh, URL paths um, but one that uh, was kind of useful is this uh, was a retrieve URL and what it does is it uh, does an HTTP request gets the data and then it stores it down as a file the other one that was uh, kind of interesting is to make a, to open up a request object in Python and then pass it a URL and uh, open the URL and then you get the HTML and uh, uh, then you can run algorithms to parse the HTML for the content which I found is kind of interesting uh, they say that that uh, this process is scalable so uh, suppose that Google had used this same approach to uh, to scrape the web. Uh, did did Google then apply this to large servers, and then was able to scale the web scraping and parsing of the data? Um, I don't know because uh, I don't know if they've ever disclosed how they scaled. Their, their web scraping but it's still an interesting idea and that's what he pointed out the author of the course was that that, uh, um, that it has to be reproducible and it has to be scalable so reproducible means maybe every day every hour it's going out checking the content of the you know exobytes of data and uh, so that's a lot of that's a lot of uh, traffic that's going out to verify these connections. But now you've got, let's say you have access to a thousand different data sources and every day you're analyzing the data sources and drawing conclusions and creating visuals. You know, it's, uh, uh, then the question is, is who, who cares? You know, why is this important? So you're learning these different algorithms and, uh, and applying, you have to, you have to find things that uh, lead to action. It just can't be just knowledge. Uh, knowledge is very helpful because it helps you uh, be able to create solutions and and it provides the framework to think about the problems. But you still need to. Um, I still think you need to start with your uh, business goals and requirements, and then. Uh, and then have a large 
resource to draw upon or a community to help you uh, move in the right direction to solve your problems. Because uh, no one person can know all the machine learning. And even, even the more courses I take, uh, the more I realize that there are just ways to think about the data. And, uh, and there's different languages, and tool, uh, not necessarily languages, but there's different functions that can do a lot of different work and, uh, and provide a lot of information to help you think about what is going on with the data. And also to see if there's correlations, uh, you know, with, uh, and so it improves the, gives you insight into the model, uh, gives you insight to what the model is saying and uh, how to state your data so that you can get better, uh, better results. In the case like uh, uh, with predictive analytics, there, there's things that are seasonal like uh, you know, during Christmas to probably uh, January, uh, you have maybe more donations than any time of the year. But at the same time, that's when you have the most spending. People are buying gifts. They're, you know, buying. You start with uh, Halloween. Uh, and it's become very popular. You have, uh, you know, candy purchases, costume purchases, and uh, and so it's a. Uh, it's an event that's driving a lot of uh, uh, consumerism. And then, uh, and then as you push into Christmas, you have gifts. And uh, you have festival events where people are getting together as family. And then you have New Year. Uh, so th there's a lot of, of events that are happening. It's also interesting, too, that in the job market... Um, when you're looking for work that uh, you're not seeing lots of activity at this time of the year because budgets haven't been approved, people's uh, outlook on how the economy is doing uh, is still, they're still apprehensive. I think uh, if Trump loses that the economy will tank hard, the stock market definitely will retract. You have a lot of problems with startups getting secondary funding or third round level funding. And, uh, and the, the, there'll be more of a migration towards uh, purchases on the web, uh, internet and, um, e-commerce will, uh, surge. I was reading about, uh, uh, BBB, bed, bath, or bath, bed, and beyond. I always get those acronyms uh, messed up, but uh, how their CEO realized that they that uh, the storefront purchases were diminishing, and so uh, he promoted uh, and pushed for a major scaling of the of the e-commerce portion of their business. They expanded that, invested heavy into uh, e-commerce uh, infrastructure, and uh, was able to bring his earnings back up. And so uh, there's a case in point of adapting to the change in circumstances and the new behavior or of consumer purchases, which would be on the web. And so there's your, I think. 
in many ways, uh, it's interesting when you go to a public place, everything is full service, it's very slow, all the self-service uh, has been done away, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's a very different type of environment as a consumer. And uh, I noticed last night when we went to get Chinese food that uh, they had a huge number of orders. I mean, they had, they were, we had to wait for about a half hour to get our order in. It was good, it was really good. Um, but uh, it was still very interesting to see how many orders were being placed. And these are all on their, their internet site. And, uh, and I wonder for certain restaurants that uh, are have been known for takeout, which Chinese food has been known for takeout, if they're doing very well uh, in terms of how they're uh, earning money. And so there's these shifts in behavior that are occurring. Another one that's kind of, I, I've been thinking about is the millennials. Uh, the millennials have a lot of say in this next election because of their their numbers they're now larger much larger than the baby boomers you have uh, Gen Z that's the younger generation behind the Millennials and uh, both the Millennials and the Gen Z are, are statistically inclined to vote for Biden and so um, it's uh, it's interesting that that tr Trump did not talk more to in the language that the millennials would understand in the debates. I think uh, his style of, uh, of debate was targeting more of the group that uh, uh, was concerned about corruption in government and uh, less about the opportunities that he was going to provide. And I think Trump would, would have provide, will provide, should he be elected, will provide uh, lots of opportunities for change. And so millennial, millennials should listen to Trump because he ha is the best candidate for discussing things that are changed. He, he's done more change than any other president. Uh, implemented good laws, he's, uh, he's revoked bad laws. There's lots of reform in the health care, where millennials are very concerned about health care. They're concerned about employment, the quality of employment, genuineness of the work environment, safety of the work environment, and uh, uh, they have the most money. They're well educated, they've, uh, they've accumulated a lot of cash now, a lot of them are in the stage now of buying, they're you know, past the starter homes and they're going to get into the uh, their first mortgage, real mortgage. Uh, and so they're buying bigger homes, more expensive homes. And, and this group uh, has a lot of money. But uh, at the same time, I, you know, it's interesting to see what, how their behavior is and they, how they view uh, the, this political process, that they view it as the president is talking to them, uh, listening to their 
issues and concerns. They're, they're concerned about climate change. They're, they were raised in the time that 9-11 uh, occurred, so they were concerned about nuclear escalation, nuclear conflict. And these are topics that are discuss are concerned. I'm concerned about nuclear conflict. Um, the world would be better off without nuclear weapons. They're they're very dangerous. Uh, they're far too dangerous to ever use. They the radioactive material has long-term consequences. And even with Chernobyl and the radioisotopes that are tracked as it spread over Europe had to have negative impacts on the people in Europe because uh, of the effect of the half-lives of those radioactive materials. So nuclear conflict is a concern for the millennials, employment, health care, uh, the economy. You know, we've, we've had a very robust economy up to this point, one of the best ever. Uh, we had stronger relationships with China than we ever have. The dollar against the yuan has got stronger. Uh, trade tariffs have brought back many uh, jobs to Americans. Manufacturing is being returned back to America. There's a lot of incentives for businesses to do uh, business in America. And those th that type of activity helps build the economy. And I think Trump was right when he, he uh, said that they are making progress with the economy. They're restoring back jobs uh, because of, uh, you know, reducing regulation, helping provide cheaper energy, and um, building the infrastructure of tomorrow. However, I think that the they need to, more change needs to be done. If carbon is such a concern that by 2015 they're talking about a zero emissions policy where you're being penalized by uh, driving carbon-based cars instead of electric cars or fuel cell cars, then I think that it's, uh, then I think that it's, uh, there needs to be a strong incentive to build the hydrogen society. And it, it is very possible because uh, fuel cell cars, they have a longer range of traveling. They can be refilled quicker uh, with the carbon fiber tanks. The carbon fiber tanks are very strong, very safe. And uh, the infrastructure could uh, easily be uh, set up to put in stations for hydrogen refilling. And um, some of the semis that I saw could have between 1,000 to 2,000 miles of distance with one refilling. So if you think about the time to refill and uh, if, they, if you're to sleep every eight hours, then that if you could get to the refilling stations, you might be able to do round trip journeys without having to refill. And so if the cost of the hydrogen were equivalent to the cost of gasoline, 
then, uh, then why not go to a hydrogen-based society? The other, the other thing that's interesting is I think the free market system needs to apply here where companies that provide the hydrogen are finding new ways to innovate to produce hydrogen. You can do hydrogen on onboard reformers where you have a, a catalyst and an electrolyte and electrolysis that produces hydrogen on demand. Um, you can have fuel, you can have uh, hydrogen tanks, you can have hydrate tanks which are metal which uh, store the hydrogen under high pressure and in the metal uh, lattice and then through heat release the hydrogen and um, and so you can move to this next generation of higher quality energy. You could even use natural gas to reform to produce the hydrogen, the hydrocarbons where uh, the system breaks apart the hydrogen and uh, it breaks apart the, the natural gas into hydrogen as a, a byproduct. So this is a great opportunity for new forms of energy to be introduced, new incentives. And uh, we also need uh, more nuclear energy or or even uh, uh, energy that can be, can, we can take our spent fuels and we can consume those to produce electricity in the form of uh, thorium reactors or uh, low-energy nuclear reactors that can produce in the gigawatts. You know, megawatts is not enough. We need gigawatt more of power. We need to have these as uh, low-cost units that are decentralized that can be placed in and scaled just like uh, the internet was scaled and information uh, was scalable. Energy has to be scalable also. And so the idea of returning back to renewables is not appealing because of the high cost for the power density and uh, the, uh, the unpredictability, I guess, of the energy loads that renewables can handle. And so in the, during the summer, you're producing more electricity with solar in the winter you're not solar is still very expensive even for my home uh, to install a complete solar units without uh, doing any financing or leasing it was like 60 grand and, uh, and so the price per kilowatt is still too high if they can reduce the through uh, plastic film and uh, shingles that could collect electricity, then building a home that was based on uh, this photovoltaic material that could collect electricity um, would would uh, make sense. But to make an investment of sixty grand and trying to get a tax credit and uh, and then paying you know for twenty or thirty years. doesn't make sense to me. So 
those are all concerns with the solar that it has to be net positive and you know, reduce your cost of your electricity and, uh, and ensure that you're making money. It has to be a money producer, not a liability. Because I think the problem with going green on this is that uh, um, if you if it's costing you and you're you're not getting net positive, then overall it just becomes more like a tax than it does become a financial incentive. And you want it to be a financial incentive so that it makes sense to uh, install solar. So that's been kind of the lag on solar is it's still fairly expensive and and uh, you know they have reduced the cost of the materials but getting durable long-term materials is still uh, not within my grasp and so I haven't chose hasn't been a financial incentive to move that way but it would be nice to be have your own independent power system battery back to system for storage and then running uh, off of that energy in the evening or, or during the day when, when uh, loads are heavy and uh, reducing down uh, your electricity cost. Um, it's interesting that the millennials were not so concerned about military. You know, in the debates, I did hear Biden talk about returning back to international law. And that seems to be non-Western military thinking. The Western military thinking is to use force when there's a conflict and, uh, and to uh, use military might to uh, reduce down the enemies of the Republic and uh, we saw that in Desert Storm we saw it in Afghanistan we saw it in Iraq that when it came to a conflict that the US military was just powerful I, I remember there's times though in Afghanistan it was scary because there were battles that we were losing and uh, but overall, it seemed to be that the military might, the technology uh, prevailed. And so warfare and technology had higher killing ratios. And as a result, at the final, at the final end of the game, uh, US hegemony was stronger. And that's always been a West, Western warfare. We want to maintain that strength uh, and we're entering into this golden age now where there's going to be peace in the world and these conflicts that we've been experiencing will be reduced and because uh, war is expensive and it requires countries governments to, to uh, back up those wars and that's, and that's what happened with the Cold War is that uh, the Cold War expenses were so high that it bankrupted Russia, and so they, they uh, or the Soviet Union, so they had to do away with their uh, uh, the Cold War and, and move to a uh, 
period where we were seeing a reduction in arms and, and uh, nuclear arms. And it would be great to see that trend continue where the world eventually removes the nuclear threat. Um, and then we move to cleaner forms of energy, more natural gas. I don't see how oil can be removed from the U.S. economy. It just doesn't make sense to take that much energy and suddenly remove it without having a substitutable energy source of equivalent power density. And oil is used in so many products, petroleum products from the creams you use to toothpaste to products that plastics, tires. It's an incredible product used in almost everything. And, uh, and so um, yeah, I think it, it will continue to be used in, in the industry. Um, as far as transportation, it has a high energy density. You know, you, you can travel, more, cars are getting more efficient. They're now hitting that 30, 35 miles per gallon standard. Even on crossovers, uh, went on a trip to Denver and the, even in headwinds, we were plowing against that. We were still getting about 25 miles to gallon. And uh, as overall, I think the trip, we were getting up over 30 miles to the gallon. So the vehicle is very efficient. It's high on Santa Fe and uh, four cylinder, lots of power, very comfortable ride. And good fuel efficiency. So the cars, new cars are are becoming better, uh, better at uh, fuel efficiency. And so I think that trend will continue on. It, it, uh, you see the new Humvee, Hummer uh, electric truck. They call it a super truck. And, uh, you know, that's... Uh, going to compete with Tesla's Cybertruck. And that's that should be interesting to see uh, how those two will compete against each other. <clears throat> but uh, for a long time I've thought that uh, electric trucks would be popular with the larger electric motors because of its torque and pull power. And uh, the power densities of the batteries are capable of, of, uh, of pulling those loads <coughs> and the motors are also capable so again GM uh, shows that they have the technology to innovate uh, they started with the, with the Volt and now they're moving to the large trucks they're introducing the electric trucks and uh Toyota has both a fuel cell semi and electric semi prototypes. So we're on the verge of some big changes, opportunities that could affect our climate and help keep the air cleaner. You 
know, we, we do have good standards in the United States for clean air. And they also, the other thing is clean water. We want clean water, and Trump did talk about clean water. And that means uh, investing in desalinization in big city areas where water is uh, expensive, bringing in and cleaning up the ocean waters and producing clean water. Now the question is, what do you do with all the salt that's left behind? And um, um, so uh, those those processes will have to be balanced. I'm not sure what they do with the salt. I imagine what it does is it recycles the salt back out into the ocean, and, uh, and it diffuses the salt that way, uh, or they harvest it and use it somewhere else. But uh, it's the cycle needs to be complete, needs to be able to uh, be fully self-contained. water that way would bring in water for agriculture, uh, water for drinking, and water for uh, consumer use. Clean water is important. Those are all very important topics I think that were touched on the debate. Uh, but I do think to move to a zero emissions by 2015 is is going to be a major shock, especially if we if you return back to the carbon incentive trade. I read uh, before Trump became president how the they several analysts were saying that the largest commodity trading would be carbon. The companies would be buying and selling carbon quota just like they do bonds and uh, and that would then drive this new carbon market uh, and so that would imply that there would need to be a clearinghouse and that there were the trades that were going on would be monitored So there would be more regulation governing carbon emission that way. And they were saying at the time that they wanted a 50% reduction in carbon by 20, I think 2030. And that even seemed like a major shock to the system because of what that implied, but Biden was saying that he wants to move the United States all to zero emission, and, and it was interesting because California tried to move to zero emission, and that's when Schwarzenegger uh, had the big push for fuel cell vehicles, and uh, California was building fuel hydrogen hydrogen refilling stations but from what I can see is that that's still very uh, in the early stages it's not a 
widespread consumer trend, that those are just still pilot programs where they have, you know, 60, 70 stations and, and, uh, and then you, you have leases on the fuel cell cars, they're still very expensive. And so in order to move to that, uh, you know, there would need to be a lower cost fuel cell car that was introduced to the market and uh, a major investment infrastructure to put in fuel cell stations and that would have to be helped by the, the government. That, that initiative would have to be started by the government to do that. But to have that all done in five years does not seem possible. And so what it would do then was impose these huge taxes on us as a result of not being able to conform to the zero emissions. And so there would be penalties and taxes that we have. Anyway, um, you know, then there's this uh, question also relating to high tech, you know, with carbon emissions and high tech. these huge cloud centers they're not running you know they're not running on solar or renewables and uh, some of them have fuel cell stacks to help uh, supplement during peak loads and balance the load but how much carbon are they releasing and so the question then would be would they also be contributing to the, the carbon problem and would they have to pay uh, fees to the government for their carbon emissions. So uh, after November, we'll see significant change, either to the positive or negative. But uh, if you start to look out at the future and the impacts, the costs associated with those changes, uh, I think it'll be very expensive. So it's something to ponder and think about as you are contemplating uh, what these changes how are going to be and how they're going to impact you. I've also been looking at uh, using this uh, long short term memory because it has the, the ability to maintain the previous state. And, uh, so the way it trades is it looks at the previous 30 days and it trades on the previous 30 days of data and then it tries to make a prediction in the, the future five days. And they, they did this fairly efficiently with precipitation where, uh, where they were measuring you know, rainfall non-rainfall and then try to predict, you know, based on uh, the precipitation, what the next five days would be. And I'm not sure why uh, they chose the five-day interval if they felt that when things were raining that, you know, statistically, maybe the cloud and the wind flow uh, would, would uh, most likely have a five-day window, so if 
time you know, it started raining to the time it stopped, maybe there would be five days of rain. Um, but the, or maybe the statistically they just said, you know, the max that we can predict whether it's going to be sunny or rainy or windy or whatever conditions is only five days. But, uh, yeah, I, I went to look for courses on LSTM, and I couldn't find, find any. And uh, to set them up is very challenging because everything has to be converted into uh, arrays. So you have to do some reshaping and get, it, get your data into array format. And then... Um, just understanding what the LSTM is doing in terms of its architecture is not intuitive. And uh, then getting the output and interpreting the output and accepting it whether what it's saying as reasonable. Because I think you still have to apply the reasonable rule whenever you're looking at uh, neural nets. Does it does that sound reasonable that uh, those conclusions could be correct? And I'm, I'm doing that a lot when I'm looking at data. Is this, does that sound reasonable? Does that, those numbers seem reasonable? And uh, and trying to find ways to confirm or, or disprove those numbers. And uh, so uh, I'm also taking another course on data camp on financials. And, learning how to uh, interpret the business financials. And I, thought, I thought that was really interesting that they put that course on, on DataCamp. And it's uh, really good. It's really helpful. It's uh, helped me understand the different terminologies. And I was able to then uh, use the, that terminology to try to decipher some of the data and figure out look at the data, like how they look at uh, accruals and, and how they look at uh, uh, crediting, you know, on POs and the way they use the financials to make business decisions. Uh, so that was, that's what I've kind of tried to understand. And, and it, it's pretty helpful. I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed Data Camp and, and uh, the coursework I'm learning. Well, I know we've talked a lot today about the political process, the millennials, but they say that if you're not paying attention to the millennials and what their, their concerns are and you're not connecting to them, then you will miss out on one of the largest wealth surges in American history. And so uh, they're they're very inclined to use technology. And it's going to be interesting to see if most of the millennials vote uh, at their center or the voting centers, or they decide to vote by mail-in or by internet and uh, my guess is because they're 
they're fairly internet tech savvy that they will probably vote by internet. And, uh, and so we may see a new change in the general way that we do our voting is now we vote by internet versus in person. And I talked to my wife about that, whether we were gonna do the early voting or we were gonna do voting uh, on the internet or we are gonna do in-person voting. And she likes uh, in-person voting, so we're gonna do in-person voting. We're more traditional. But I have a feeling that the millennials will do their voting online. And so um, there's already, as we're getting closer to the election results, there's already probably a big surge in the decision who will be the next president right now that's occurring. And, uh, and so the, the, the outcomes of this will be, uh, will be discussed and analyzed. But I definitely see that there's uh, a new trend that's emerging here. think that uh, AI is very task-oriented, but I, I did notice that, uh, I think I did talk about the nematode 19 neurons during the week, and that that's been playing on my mind quite a bit, is how 19 neurons were effective at driving a car, and so it, it could recognize objects, it could recognize road, what was the road, it can make uh, decisions for acceleration, deceleration, and driving, and, and it did effective. It was effective just with 19 neurons. And uh, so then the question is, is well, how would it do with a thousand neurons or a million neurons? Because that's exactly what the, they will do when they manufacture the uh, the neuron set into hardware is that they'll, they'll want to scale it and move it to um, larger larger numbers of neurons so um, it's, it almost seems gimmicky but uh, at the same time if you look at the costs that they have for these large data centers it's not a gimmick companies uh, mostly large companies are able to afford the deep learning and the staff required to put the deep learning in place and understand it. And personally, I've only taken a few courses in deep learning and uh, um, getting an understanding of it has been incremental. And, and so I'm looking uh, to understand deep learning better but if I can understand it with neurons and and a visual tool that is super powerful like the nematode then I think I could do better that way in terms of providing value